Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I will say, and I will leave it alone. They are terrorists. He is traitor. And hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, he will be gone. Hi, everyone. I'm John McGowan, and welcome to Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone podcast. It is the only wicked good podcast out there. It is the people's podcast. It is the major league of professional wrestling podcast. Before I bring out my guest, who I'm really excited to have on, if you would like to follow me on Twitter, just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has chair fighters in his avatar. I'm also once again, inviting everyone to be part of our Facebook group. We talk wrestling. Uh, this week I actually put up my top 20 favorite albums of 1976. So that's all right there for you. And with that, this show comes out on Friday, January 15th, three days later is the 50th anniversary of Ivan Koloff winning the WWF championship from Bruno Sammartino. Then three weeks after that, Pedro Morales began his three-year reign as WWF champion. My guest was present at Madison Square Garden for both of those title changes and more. I want to bring out John Jance. John, thank you for taking the time to be on Stick to Wrestling and, and sharing your mind with us. Amen to your opening statement, John. Thank you. <laughs> it's an honor for me to be making my debut on your uh wicked good raw bone people's podcast so i thank you (laughs) you're very welcome john before we i started peppering you with questions please give us a little bit of your background as a wrestling fan like how did it all get started well i've grown up in queens new york we're in queens uh, flushing oh man we're practically neighbors i'm from jackson heights oh wow yeah that's five minutes away yeah, oh, not even. I mean, I can get on the train and be in, at Shea Stadium literally in five minutes. Oh, I know that. <laughs> I'm a ticket holder. <laughs> well, there you go. I, I worshipped them growing up, but I'm out of that now. <laughs> <laughs> well, come back. We have Lindor. Yes, what an awesome trade that was for you guys. You guys gave up nothing. It, I mean, Jimenez, it, you know, see, it was like one of the highlights of the season, but no. We we have Lindor. That's all that counts. Yeah, well, and for those who don't know, Francisco Lindor is a fantastic shortstop, and the Mets got him. I mean, they didn't even give up quality prospects. But anyway, no. I've got to start. I've got to start sticking to wrestling again. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, t- so you grew up in Flushing. When did you When did you become a fan? And how? Well, in the early '60s, Saturday night on WNEW, wrestling from Washington with Ray Morgan would be televised. Yes. So occasionally I would see, you know, I would watch it. I was like six or seven and you'd see the beginnings of Bruno San Martino. You'd see Antonino Rocca, Haystack Calhoun, and a, a variety of villains that most of them I've tended to forget. And then for some reason in the mid 60s, they stopped televising it on WNEW and it just disappeared. So, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Right. Until one day in 19, early 1969, I was playing chess with uh, my neighbor and he had a TV set on and it was on. He had wrestling from Washington, D.C. This was a Wednesday afternoon. But every time the commercials came on, they were in Spanish. So I'm saying, what's this? They said, oh, this is UHF, which we didn't have on our outmoded black and white TV at home. So immediately. We would play chess every Wednesday as my uh, pretense to watch wrestling. And so at that time, I I felt I just got hooked on the characters, on Bruno, on just everything. Mostly the interviews seemed to intrigue me the most. Oh, you and everyone else. Yeah. I mean, that was that was the, the, the highlight of the show. So when did you actually start attending matches? Like, did, was, was your first show at Madison Square Garden or was it a spot show? Yeah, no. Later, later that year, my father surprised me for my birthday with tickets to Madison Square Garden. This was the October 1969 show where Bruno fought Waldo Von Erich in a Texas death match. 
So, of course, I mean, it was like the greatest birthday present ever for me. And, you know, to, to be able to see Bruno, to see him whip Waldo, and just to finally go to Madison Square Garden, because just saying Madison Square Garden was magical. I mean, even from even me being from the Boston area, I mean, Madison Square Garden is it, it's just a huge deal, whether it comes to wrestling or anything else. Absolutely. You walk in there, smoke filled, mostly men, middle aged and older, but there was an aura around it. And so I, I, I was I was just excited. Outstanding. So now when did you start going regularly? That was it. That that was my first show, and I went every month. And I don't think uh, I think there was only one show I missed in the next uh, through the end of Morales's reign. I saw every one of Pedro's title matches. I saw all of Bruno's matches for the next for his last year, uh, his last two years. And um, I don't think I missed a show till about 1974. I mean, you sound like me. Once I started going in 1981, I, I did not miss Boston Garden shows until I, I kind of waned off in 86. But there was there's one I missed because of a blizzard. I mean, what are you going to do? And I mean, it was just part of my my monthly thing. I mean, I would I would literally be counting the days to the last to the next time I would be able to see WWF wrestling in Boston, you know, with Bob Backlund on top every time. Oh, yeah. I was still going to um, Madison Square Garden through Billy Graham and um, Backlund till about near the end. of When Backlund started wearing the singlet, that's when I was sort of like, mm, I'm, I'm kind of done with this. <laughs> uh, but I mean, consecutively from October 69, I think the first card I met, I think I went every single show to, through 74, 75. That is so great, man. I wish I had seen the things that you'd seen. And and it's like everything else. I mean, I have gone to live wrestling, I mean, once in the last 20 years. No, like, I'd say definitely once in the last 15 years. You, you just grow out of it, you know? Yeah. All right. Especially the wrestling now, so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I like some of it today. I still watch like the monthly WWE specials. I'll watch the Royal Rumble in a few weeks, but it, it's changed so much and not for yeah. the better, in my opinion. I, I totally agree. I mean, McMahon uh, Jr. is a genius, but the direction he took it has been a positive and it's been a negative. And in the last 10, 15 years, it's just not my cup of tea to watch. So. No, I, I I see where you're coming from, man. So Ivan Koloff versus Bruno San Martino, January 18th, 1971. You told me an, an, an interesting story a couple of days ago about a birthday party on that night. Can you share that with our audience? Sure. January 18th is my father's birthday. And um, in all my life, in over 60 years, I always celebrated with him. Our family did. And I don't think I ever missed one single birthday for him except January 18th, 1971. So about a week before his birthday, I finally decided to ask him. And I said, you know, is it okay if I'm not here for the party, you know, a Monday night, I want to go to Madison square garden. So he looks at me and he says, well, why? And uh, you go every month. And I said to him, well, I think Bruno's going to lose the title that night. So he gave, so he had a little grin on his face and he nodded to me and he says, well, for that reason. And then he nodded. Yes. Now I am absolutely fascinated by that because I have heard over the years that Bruno losing the title was an absolute shock to everyone, but you kind of saw it coming. Tell us about that. Okay. I had been at the garden show the month before and, uh, he had beaten Bruno had beaten bulldog Brower for like the 1 millionth time, but he didn't pin him. And, uh, when they announced the following car, they said, Ivan Koloff would be the next challenger in January. And, and I was thinking to myself that that's strange. Koloff just lost to Bruno the last time around just earlier this year. So why would they bring him back 
this quickly. Now, did and he leave I, or, or was it part of the same run? Oh, uh, in 1969, Koloff came in the winter, uh, fought Bruno. Uh, in fact, it was practically exactly a year in 1970 that Bruno pinned him to blow off their series. And then Koloff appeared for a few more weeks until he left. So Koloff did leave the territory. I'd say about March or April of 1970. So here he was suddenly coming back like six months later. I, something seemed strange that that was my first alarm, nothing major, but it was just something. Then I started thinking, I said, well, the other thing that sort of led me there was that near the end, of, when uh, Koloff was returning at the end of 1970, he had a new manager. His original manager was a non-entity named Tony Angelo. But now he was back with Lou Albano. Now, Lou, I think his first protege was in um, June 1970 with the horrendous Crusher Verdue. Oh, I mean, oh, I would rather watch a tree stump. The pictures of Verdue were so impressive. And then I got to see him. I've, I've had like two matches of his and oh, he is bad. Oh, my God. Awful. Awful. And yet, Lou Albano became his uh, voice, and suddenly from 14, 15, 16,000 people at each garden show, they sold out twice, twice. So Albano was now the manager of uh, not only Ivan Koloff, but also the Mongols. So I said, that's interesting. I wonder why that would happen, besides the fact Tony Angelo sucked. Yeah. The other thing was also that Bruno during 1970, I thought had a very weak schedule. I, I, he, he fought bums like Purdue, Crippler, Carl Kovacs, Bulldog Brower. He also had, you know, more runarounds with, they're not bums, uh, Killer Kowalski and Professor Tanaka and George Steele. But we've seen that. We've seen that over and over. And in addition to that, Bruno was also fighting a lot of tag team matches with Victor Rivera against the Mongols. So I'm saying to myself, you know, his, his schedule seems a lot weaker. His opponents are weaker. And in one of the previous matches at Madison Square Garden, when he faced Beppo Mongol, he fought Beppo twice. Beppo now Nikolai Volkov. Right. Uh, he fought him twice based on the fact that in their tag team match at the Garden, Beppo pinned Bruno for one of the falls. So that was, you know, wow, Bruno got pinned. I know it's a tag match, but that was still earth shattering in 1970s. So things started clicking in my head that, well, you know what? It's almost eight years. The day is going to come. And you know what? Ivan Koloff is a damn good wrestler. And if he was going to lose to anyone, I don't think anybody would quibble that, that it was Ivan Koloff. So those things were starting to happen. Now, two more things on top of that just cemented it for me. And one was his interviews. His interviews on TV, especially with Ray Morgan, were becoming a lot more introspective. Like, you know, tell us about your career, your favorite hole, what it's been like to be champ for so long. And, and Bruno seemed very wistful and, and very reflective, uh, which he often was. I mean, people don't give him the credit he deserves as being really one of the best interviews in all of wrestling history. The guy was dynamite. I mean, I, I know by our standards now, it's not the same, but you don't carry the WWF and gain that respect and that popularity with the fake act and with Bruno, it was all genuine and sincere with him. So those interviews were telling me, you know what, Th this is getting fishy. But finally the icing on the cake was the return of Pedro Morales. Now he started making appearances. He was back here as the U S champ. And, uh, he was, it was announced that he would fight this, this piece of crap named Willie, the Wolfman Farkas on January 18th at the garden as the semi-main event. So 
adding all those ingredients together, I was pre- normally I, I would have said, Dad, I'm there for your birthday. Putting all these together, I had to ask his permission to go. And thankfully, he granted it to me because the rest is history. Now, how long had Pedro been out of the WWF before his return in 1970? That I can't really tell you. Uh, It would have had to be before 1968. I do remember Pedro Morales at some point about 65, I believe, before it went off the air in uh, New York City, off uh, off of the local channel before it went to the Spanish channel. Right. So I, oh. I can't really tell you when Pedro left. Oh, that's okay. So you're in Madison Square Garden, January 18th, 1971. Can you tell us how this historic match unfolded before you? Well, no different from any other Bruno match. Koloff was just a great opponent. They, they had great chemistry together. And it seemed to me that... Um, you know, it was just their typical match. I didn't see anything unusual about it. Koloff and Bruno fought their usual styles, and there it was. What's the word? Um, undistinguished from any of their past matches until the end. And what? What? How? What was the finish? I mean, we, some of us have seen it on tape. I've seen it on tape, but for those who haven't. I only watched it, on, as a side note, I only watched it on tape once, and I should have watched it uh, with the sound off because that commentary and the, uh, the commentary sucked, and obviously the ending to have crowd noises was obviously wrong, but here it goes. The ending was pretty much as I remembered it. Bruno whipped Koloff into the ropes. This was after about 15 minutes or so, and again, it was their average great match whips him in the ropes and charges into the ropes. Koloff puts his foot out, kicks him down. Bruno lands on the mat. Koloff then climbs up the ring post to do his leg drop. Now, we've seen this a million times, and the crowd is, you know, going wild, you know, because we're expecting Bruno's going to get up, as he did a million times before. But as I'm watching it, it just seemed to me, and there, there, there's some sort of a psychological term for it, but it seemed that Koloff was climbing up and going and, and flying off the, the ring post in slow motion. To me, it was just happening in slow motion. And he hits Bruno, I believe it was across the chest, and um, then goes for the count. And the referee goes, and the, and the crowd is still roaring, and the ref's going, one, two, no kick out. One, two, three. Dead silent. The bell rings. I'm getting chills thinking about this moment. <laughs> and um, silence in the garden. The crowd, half the crowd just stands on their feet. The other half is just like, what? But again, for, for a good 30 seconds or so, I'd say there was silence. Then I start hearing some sobbing. And you just look around and you see people were genuinely stunned, as I was, because it's still, you know, Bruno was just pinned. Even though I sort of expected it, you know, you know what I mean? It's just like, it happened. Yeah. The unbelievable happened. So the uh, ring announcer, who I believe was the legendary Johnny Addy at the time, the boxing uh, ring announcer, also did the garden. And he says the time, 15 minutes, so-and-so seconds, and the winner, Ivan Koloff. That's it. Didn't say new champion. He said the winner, Ivan Koloff. There was a smattering of boos. Not much. Not what you would anticipate. But there was some booing. And absolutely no one was heading to the ring for a riot. There were no police surrounding the ring for a riot. Nobody was going to riot. Everybody was stunned. They were just too stunned. And they got Koloff out of the ring pretty quickly, without the belt, obviously. And um, Skolin comes in to console Bruno. And I just remember as Bruno was getting up to leave, he got a huge ovation. 
you know, it was just like really strong, really sincere. It wasn't the kind of that you see at most sports events. I'd say it was an ovation of appreciation yeah. that he got. And it, it, it was that type. And he left and that was it. That was what I recall. Was that the last match of the night? Oh, no, no, no. Because Bruno's matches were usually in the middle of the card. And that way you'd have one or two matches. And then the highlight for many of the night was when they would announce the next card. Right. And at that point, at the next, uh, when the, when Johnny Addy said, and here's the lineup for February, three weeks from now, uh, the main event would be the new WWF champion, Ivan Koloff, and not much of a crowd reaction, you know, the usual booze, but not more so than you think against pause. The United States champion, Pedro Morales, boom, lid off the garden. Okay. Cause I mean, usually the championship match was not last anywhere in the Northeast, to be honest with you, but I just wanted to check on that. Now, the only times that it would be the last is if it would be up against the 11 o'clock curfew, like Morales versus Stasiak would be, or uh, Bruno versus Steele. So those were the only times. If the championship match was last, you know it was going to curfew. Okay. <laughs> that, that totally makes sense. Now, if I'm sitting in that crowd and they announce that it's not going to be a Bruno versus Koloff rematch the next month, and it's Pedro Morales, I would start to get a little suspicious that the title's going to change hands again in three weeks. Were you kind of in that boat? I was convinced. I already pretty much knew it because in, in my imagination, before seeing the Bruno Koloff match, I just said, you know what? Bruno's going to lose. Morales will take over after that. I didn't think it would be that quick, but... uh Sure enough, as soon as they announced it, I knew that the title was going to change again in three weeks. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, the, what was the television like the next week? Did they, you know, did they announce it right away or did they, like, what was the announcement like? I, sh- I guess I should be asking. Here's one of my regrets. I used to audio tape on reel to reel the interviews from 1969 on. Uh-huh which I had put away in a garage attic, which unfortunately had a leak in the roof. Oh man. Destroyed all my audio tapes, my reel to reels from all that time, because they would get wet. They would freeze in the winter time. They became brittle. <sighs> the interviews. No, the interviews mostly focused on Morales versus Koloff. There, there was very, and that Bruno would be returning to face, I believe Guido Mongol in the semi-main event. So it was, I don't recall. No, there, there weren't really any interviews with Bruno about the loss. They just moved ahead that Koloff was facing Pedro. There was no retrospect on uh, Bruno. Okay. And which in a way makes sense. I mean, you know, in order to get Pedro over as the new champion, which is, you know, obviously very important. You can't spend too much time reminiscing on Bruno. Exactly. And you only had three weeks to do it. Right. So now we're moving on to uh, February the 8th, 1971. Main event is Pedro Morales against Ivan Koloff. I know you suspected that the, ch- the title was going to change hands. What was the atmosphere like in Madison Square Garden? Did, did everyone kind of see this coming? Yes. I, 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 well, yes. I, I think they were just excited that Pedro Morales was back and that he would be avenging Bruno and uh, going against Koloff. I don't think there was anyone there that didn't expect the title to change hands. Okay, and w- which totally makes sense in my opinion. Now, do you remember what do you remember about that match, Pedro Morales versus Ivan Koloff? I don't think I've seen that one. Koloff seemed different. He didn't approach Pedro the way that he did with Bruno. He didn't come at him. He was showing a lot of respect to Pedro. And uh, wasn't as on the offense as usual. Now, at that point, I was not a Pedro Morales fan in this incarnation. Uh, He was not as fast. He was not as flashy as I had barely remembered and as his reputation had done. 
you know, he would do a high spot and then five minutes of a headlock or some sort of rest hold. He did a lot of stalling. He would throw a lot of uh, punches, but very little in the way of wrestling. However, Koloff was just not on the offense like he usually is. And to me, it just didn't seem like much of a match. Honestly, if I could have had a replacement for Bruno, it would have been Victor Rivera. I think Victor Rivera, I would have been thrilled if he had been the next champ. And I would love, I don't know who could ever tell us why Rivera was not considered as the replacement and that they brought in Morales, if you're going to appeal to the Spanish audience. Because Victor had more than proven himself over the last two or so years. And as far as I know, had never been pinned to Madison Square Garden. So I wasn't a Morales fan. and. uh I just didn't think it was much of a match. Now, we spoke a few days ago before uh, you came on, and I had never even imagined, it was a little bit before my time, but I knew Victor Rivera was a big star. I know he had main events and tag team matches with Bruno Sammartino at Madison Square Garden. I mean, my, my mind was kind of blown when you rolled that out there a few days ago that you thought Victor Rivera would have, in fact, been a, a better WWF champion than than Pedro Morales. I'm convinced at that time that he would have been. I think maybe perhaps uh, that he had been around for too long and that they needed someone like Morales to come back. You know, maybe nostalgia or something would uh, propel him. As I said, I don't ever remember Rivera losing matches. And uh, he was a high flyer. He, He had great moves. He was the guy who would, you know, finish off uh, Bruno's opponents after, you know, they went through the cycle. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, he was like the number two um, babyface in the territory and had been so for a long time. So I thought he was deserving. I sort of uh, resented that Morales, who lost several steps in his repertoire, was, uh, was back. But he was a name, he was established, he was remembered, he was very popular, as you could see, you know, from his uh, drawing power over the next three years. Yeah, I mean, would you regard his his three-year run generally as a success? That is a great question. (laughs) It was a success in Madison Square Garden. There's no denying the numbers that he drew month after month. He was freaking selling out the garden, no matter who he wrestled. But it was the same match. It was the same interviews. It was the same match. It was the same style. He was getting slower and slower. One thing about Pedro, which I admired, was he sold the crap for his opponent. That I respect him for. He really let his opponent get their best offense in, no matter whether it was Curtis Iakia or Stan Stasiak or anyone else. Especially, I remember Don Leo Jonathan was just like wiping the floor with him the whole match. And then the last 30 seconds, Pedro flies off the top ropes and wins out of nowhere after getting shellacked for, for 15 minutes. So Pedro's selling, I thought, was exceptional. His drawing power in New York was fine, but he wasn't drawing, as far as I remember, anywhere else i have heard that he did relatively well in philadelphia but was kind of a bomb everywhere else uh baltimore pittsburgh boston etc i heard the same thing and i mean you know i i asked you you know would you regard him as a success as champion and you know i i already kind of knew the answer i mean Vince McMahon Jr. gave Bruno a, a, just an unbelievable deal to come back. I think he got 10% of the gross, and he got a reduced schedule. I mean, the legend has it that Sam Muchnick called Vince Sr. and yelled at him because of the, the deal he gave Bruno that was better than what the NWA champion was getting. And the NWA champion was the champion, and... When you base it on the quality of opponents and the work rate, the, the work schedule that they had. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and I always knew, look, I love the, the old WWF, but I mean, it was north to Portland, south to Washington, west to Pittsburgh, and everything else was the NWA. Oh, the, the NWA champion was 
the world's heavyweight champion, but Bruno was Bruno. Exactly. That's just the way it was. I mean, Bruno was still drawing in Boston in this weird feud they had against uh, Roddy Piper in 85 and 86 and Randy Savage in 86. I don't think anyone else could have pulled that off. No, no, you're right. I mean, he was just the legend. He didn't get pushed on TV or anything like that, but he was Bruno Sammartino. End of story. I mean, even after he lost the title the second time, look at the series with Zabisco. Look at the fact he headlined at Chase Stadium three times. I mean, they weren't sellouts, but he still headlined. And, and Morales did, too. The, the Morales-Bruno match was also at Chase. So I, I give, you know, Morales gets credit for being able to draw in New York, but as you said, not really that well in most other cities. So I can understand McMahon making the deal. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, Pedro drew, drew well in New York, drew pretty well in, in Philly. Bruno drew in Boston, in Philly, and everywhere else. There was a little arena not far from Jackson Heights and, uh, called Sunnyside Garden. You I had family that? in Sunnyside. Ah, there you go. It was a little old-fashioned boxing arena, and the big thing was that twice a year Bruno would wrestle there against a B-level villain, but Bruno would be there. And it was always sold out, like, within a day or two. If you didn't get your ticket. The first date was on sale. Forget it. With Morales, I went there once for one of his matches against Buddy Wolf, and uh, let's say there were empty seats. Wow. Not <laughs> many, but still, it wasn't a Bruno crowd. And, and I get that, because I grew up literally down the road from a place called Jack Witchy Sports Arena that had WWF wrestling every Friday night. And, you know, it, it didn't always sell, sell out, but if superstar Billy Graham was defending the title there, which I think he did twice, you better get your tickets the day they go on sale. If Andre's there, it's going to sell out. Yeah, you would generally know who, who sells out. Yeah. Hey, were you at the Bruno versus Pedro Shea Stadium match? Yes. Sorry to say. <laughs> ah, you've already answered my question, <laughs> but can you tell us a little bit about First, the build-up to that match, and then the match itself. The build-up, I thought, was was really very well done, where I, I forgot who they were facing in the tag team match. It may have been um, Tanaka and Fuji, I believe. Yes. Uh, okay, where they had the split-up. Now, the thing I found interesting in that was that they were making Bruno to be a very subtle heel. <sighs> I can't explain it. Bruno obviously was not a heel, but you know what? He was being a little bit more aggressive than usual, maybe? <laughs> uh, no, no. It was, um, it, it was something about just the style of the interview. You would say to yourself, look, if these two were such friends, why don't they just like talk it out instead of having to fight? There was some sort of, aura over the whole thing that sort of cast him as the bad guy because of course pedro could not lose that that's one thing you know that with many of the crowd that would go to madison square garden it didn't matter who pedro was facing the other person was the heel right so they're having this giant match at chase stadium and by the way i'm not i'm not aware of any pedro versus bruno matches anywhere else um i should have looked that up before we started but please tell us about the, that match, and it is that match is legendary for all of the wrong reasons. You you went to Shea Stadium, you saw it. Please tell us about it. It lived up to its reputation. It, it really was a disappointment. Now, the match started with great anticipation. Everybody was all excited in the first few minutes, like most Pedro Morales matches. Pedro worked. Bruno always worked, and um. It was exciting, and I think at about the 10-minute mark, it just became a series of rest holes. It would be arm locks on the mat. It would be um, head locks on the mat. And you could just see, especially when it was about 10 o'clock or so, 10 after 10, I saw on this, and, and I just said to myself, wait, they've had all the other matches. Is it possible they're, they're actually going to go to the draw? Because you knew there was no way Pedro was going to lose 
And there was no way Bruno was going to lose. So I just did not imagine that it would go to the curfew draw. I just could not see either of them winning that match. There are some matches where you just, you know, you, you can't have a finish, so you, you got to rely a fall back on the draw. That's basically it. So they had to do whatever they could to make sure both of them could last 70, 75 minutes. Now, there was Ugh. one moment, I believe, where George Steele ran out to the ring to cause a commotion. Yes. He ran out from the dugout and ran over and was outside for about three, four minutes, which gave both of them a, a well-needed little break in the middle of the match. So the match is every bit as bad as its reputation. I'm sorry to say, yes. <laughs> build up, the build-up was phenomenal, but you know when you're adding the fact, I believe it was September, it was a very chilly Saturday night. That's what I heard. And, um, and uh, it did not live up to what everybody expected. We wanted to see more. But, but again, Pedro was very limited, even at that point, in, in what he could do in the ring. I'm just wondering what the WWF was thinking, because they're booking a show on a Saturday night late in September. And it not only does it tend to get cold in New York, but I mean, Shea Stadium, I don't know why. It's like the coldest place on Earth. Absolutely. The wind just uh, coming in from Flushing Bay just goes right through you. And that night it was. And I'm trying to remember if it had been drizzling that night also. For some reason, I have a feeling that there may have been some drizzle. Oh, great. So not only is it really cold, it was really damp. That that's my distant memory. Okay, no, it's been it's been 50, uh, been almost 50 years. So that's quite all right. Now, after the match was over, like, did they shake hands and hug? And were they okay? Absolutely. Like they were the best of friends. The crowd went home happy. And um, oh, yeah. They were definitely friends. There was no, even at the beginning of the match, they, I believe that they did shake hands at the beginning of the match. They fought each other. They wrestled. There, there were no, um, there were a couple times where you would get the um, set up where someone would be in the ropes and you'd wonder, hmm, is he going to throw a punch at them? But neither did. Neither of them broke any rules. You would okay. see that, you know, Pedro would get agitated every now and then. Bruno would get angry a little now and then, but they never broke any rules big hug just like when um pedro beat koloff at the end of that match bruno runs into the ring and now the garden was already going insane over uh, pedro winning but then when bruno comes in to give him the belt i mean now the roof was off so they were friends again i am so glad you brought that up that's in my notes to bring up and i didn't bring it up and we kind of passed by it but now we we're back to me that was one of the smartest things a wrestling promotion can ever do, and that is have the legend Bruno endorse Pedro Morales as the new WWE, at the time, WWF champion. That's correct. It was, it was a brilliant move, and it worked. Now, I'm not sure if you were watching wrestling in 1990. Um, the Ultimate Warrior beat Hulk Hogan at the Sky Dome in Toronto and became the new WWF champion. And they tried to play it as like warrior was not the number one baby face. It was like kind of a tie with Hogan one and one a, and I have always said that that is one big reason why ultimate warrior did not get over the way he, I felt he should have as WWF champion when Pedro, when the torch was finally passed, did Bruno kind of step aside slash step away or, you know, they just, if I recall correctly, they kind of got Bruno out of the way. Well, Bruno was there that night to fight Guido Mongol as the co-main event. And that was February. He didn't come back till about July, I believe, uh, where he beat Blackjack Mulligan in about a minute. So yeah, at that point, Bruno was gone. He wasn't on TV. He was just basically retired. And nobody bore any grudge about that because for eight years, you know, he represented. So he deserved the break. From what I have read, he desperately wanted a break. And he, they did the same thing when Bob Backlund became champion. Bruno kind of went away for a few months. Yeah. Well, I mean, at that point, 
I mean, of course, Bruno had to fight Graham in a couple rematches, but uh, after the Hanson match, he was pretty much finished. Oh, from what I understand, after the Hanson match, Bruno absolutely wanted out. <laughs> and yeah, to oh, think he was still around 10 years later, but because they needed him. Could you imagine? I mean, just try to imagine that he was back doing a cage match and then doing the match at Shea Stadium like that summer. Yeah. Against Hanson. That was not very long at all after he he sustained the injury. I mean, yeah, I know Bruno has complained that they rushed him back, that Vince Sr. had told him that, you know, hey, he's on the phone begging him, you know, I'm going to lose my business, I'm going to go under, and Bruno's sitting there with his neck broken, for God's sake. Well, at that time, remember, you had the Ali Inoki match, so Vince Sr. obviously saw, well, you know, if we tie that up with Bruno's return versus Hanson, you know, this is money in the bank and we could get Shea stadium. So to McMahon, it made perfect sense. Uh, but as far as Bruno's concerns, I sure hope he got a lot of money for that. Same here. Did you go to that show? No, I was actually, this is kind of unusual. I was actually in of all places on earth, Albania. And I was flying back that night. Oh man from Albania, but believe it or not, in Albania, which back then was under real communist oppression, uh-huh. everybody knew who Muhammad Ali was, and they whispered to me, who do you think's going to win, Ali or the wrestler? That's funny. It's always the wrestler. But they, they, uh, even there where news from the outside world was heavily censored, everybody knew that fight was happening. No, that night I was coming home. So otherwise I would have gone. Okay, cool. Well, I mean, you've seen so much cool stuff. Another thing I want you to share with the audience, Pedro's reign comes to an end on December the 1st, 1973. Uh, Stan Stasiak beat Pedro Morales. And then right afterwards, Bruno Sammartino takes the belt from Stasiak. Were you there the night that Stan Stasiak won the title? Yes. I think the month before... Uh, I believe Pedro was defending the title. I I think it was against Larry Hennig. Not positive. But at the end of the night, they announced, uh, and next month, December 8th or whatever it was, the main event will be Pedro Morales defending the title against Larry Hennig in Texas Deathmatch, I believe. You know, with with the appropriate pauses to build up excitement. And Stan the Man Stasiak will be in the semi main event against. And then, of course, Bruno San Martino. Now, I'm ready to buy the ticket because Bruno's back and against one of Pedro's better opponents. So I said, this will be good. We didn't know, I believe it was the, I think it was a week before on Saturday night, the first Saturday of December, where it was announced on uh, Allentown TV, I believe, that Stasiak had beaten Pedro. And that was our first, there was no film, no tape. They didn't give any description. They just said Stasiak had won the title. And the interview announcements all said, well, now Bruno will be challenging for the title. And that's how it came across, which was, which was the smart move to do it the way they did because they didn't have any riot. Oh, yeah. They were to announce that Pedro lost. Because, you know, in... All the in the two plus years that Pedro held the title at the Garden, he never lost a match, not even by decision, not even by countout, not even by blood. Now, I know there's a result on a website that I very much respect, which on one of the Stasiak matches, they have that he lost. No way. No <laughs> way. If you told that crowd that Pedro Morales lost a match, you would have had trouble. Just like the night when Pedro won the title, that ring was surrounded by cops immediately, immediately. The crowd wasn't going to riot, but they were in a real happy frenzy. Yeah. If Pedro lost the match, no, no. And I don't doubt for a minute anything you're telling us because I used to, we talked about this. In the early 80s, I would go to the Boston Garden, and it could be a dangerous place. And that's just the way the Northeast was, you know, whether it be New York, Philly, Madison Square Garden. I mean, you know, the wrestling night was always crazy. Oh, yeah. Usually, even in the Garden on undercards, 
there, there would be occasional matches where the crowd would really be getting rowdy and very excited, but it was still the garden. So there seemed to be a little bit more of a, you know, keep things in line code because we're in the garden. In the garden, you behave somewhat. <laughs> you could be emotional, but this is still the garden. <laughs> it, it was that kind of thing. But uh, right. not with Pedro. Pedro, no, he didn't lose. So I think <laughs> the move to switch it the way they did it was very smart. And it's funny because history repeats itself. I mean, you know, that's pretty much, it's very similar to the way they move the title from Backlund to Iron Sheik to Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. Now, did you see, like, was there any kind of a buildup for Bruno returning as champion or Bruno winning the title on that night? Absolutely none. Absolutely none. He wasn't doing any TV matches. The only interviews he was doing was, you know, uh, uh, it, it's a pleasure to be returning to Madison Square Garden and uh, my, my home and, uh, and, you know, facing a very tough opponent and Bruno was his usual respectful interview. Nothing prior to the announcement that Stasiak was the champ. Nothing would have tipped you off that this was going to happen. It was just Bruno doing his twice a year appearance at the garden. That's all. Uh, that, then when you learned that Pedro had lost the title to Stasiak and that Bruno versus Stasiak, it was now for the title. How much did you suspect that the title was going to change hands again? Oh, who didn't? <laughs> who didn't? I, I absolutely convinced. I mean, if Pedro was out of the way, you know, just that Stasiak would be the interim champ pretty much like Koloff was. Only he'd be champ for eight or nine days. I would have bet the house on it. I would have bet the house on it. Yeah, I mean, no disrespect to Stan Stasiak, who, from as a matter of fact, I, I'm asking someone who would know, I mean, Stan Stasiak was actually pretty good in the early 70s, so I heard. Stan Stasiak, I would say, may have been Pedro's best all-around opponent. He fought Pedro many times. He always gave him a... T- they just had styles that matched. They had styles that worked against each other. So I've, I've always felt that Stasiak, for his longevity against Pedro, he fought him two or three times over the years. And uh, I, I would put him at the very top. Now, that is so a very when, interesting viewpoint. Yeah. When, so when the word, I, I mean, as far as an actual garden match, I think Don Leo Jonathan just destroyed Pedro twice. I mean, that Don Leo Jonathan was absolutely the best wrestler I saw Pedro wrestle. I mean, hands down. But he was only in for the series against Pedro, pretty much. He wasn't really around the circuit too long, but for someone around the circuit, definitely Stasiak, I consider the top guy. That That's interesting because I always looked at it as, you know, I always try to put myself in the mindset of someone who was around during that time period. And, you know, I think I would have figured out that Bruno was winning the title. And part of the reason would have been, I just can't see Stan Stasiak having any kind of a real run with the WWF title. Oh no, absolutely. Going into it, when, when it was first announced, Bruno was going to fight Stasiak. The only reason to get the ticket was, wow, Bruno's going to beat him. And you know, it's good to see Bruno back. Yeah. We didn't know at the time that Pedro was going to lose to Stasiak. So it was only announced, as I said, about a week before the actual match. So there were two Saturday tapings that we saw with interviews. But prior to those two tapings, it was just a usual Bruno Stasiak match. But no, oh, no, a- a- anybody with any, with any idea about the scene knew that Stasiak was not going to keep it, especially when he was fighting Bruno at Madison Square Garden. Are you kidding? I would you know, love to find someone who was willing to bet on that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it's funny, like I'm, I'm having this conversation with you and we, I mean, we all knew that wrestling was a work. Everyone, like if you're going to Madison Square Garden, even, you know, paying for tickets, whatever, my friends and I, we always kind of just turned our brains off and just say, yeah. okay, we're going to pretend this is, is not a work and we're going to enjoy it. But at the same time, I mean, you and I did the same thing. Like, you know, you put together 
the clues on Ivan Koloff's going to win the title, not in, in an athletic contest, but something that is laid out. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. All right. I, we're running out of time, and I've got so much. I got more important things to, to ask you about. You were present at Madison Square Garden when Bob Backlund beat superstar Billy Graham for the WWF title. Can you tell me a little bit about the buildup to that and what that match was like and what Madison Square Garden was like on that night? Well, the buildup for Backlund done by Senior was just absolutely fantastic. If you're going to give uh, Senior credit for anything, he took Backlund. Now, now, of course, the New York area, the WWF was built on ethnic baby faces being on top usually. But at that time, you know, Bruno wanted out. I am in the camp that says Billy Graham should have stayed longer. I think he should have turned into a, you know, baby face. And um, he could have gotten another year or so out of him. However, I think, you know, McMahon found Backlund and took this very different type of good guy. Uh, you know, Tony Gurria and guys like that never cut the mustard. But Backlund had the skill, had reputation. The guy was tough. He was strong. He knew his moves. And yeah, his interviews sucked, but he was the ultimate good guy. So I think taking him, introducing him to this area, feeding him to all the enhancement talent, shall we say, and building him up very methodically over the next almost a year. It was a little more than a year. Yeah, over a year. No, I, I, I saw that pretty much coming soon, not too long after Graham won the title. I didn't think Graham would lose it quickly. I thought that they would keep it on him for a few months till Backlund got East Coast seasoning. Yeah. And uh, it, it was almost a year, I believe. So by the time Backlund was set for the match, it was a go. Uh, again, another show where it was electric because you, you had a lot of Billy Graham fans. Yeah. Which uh, should be noted that there were a lot of people who were cheering for Billy Graham. Uh, not so much in Madison Square Garden, but in other arenas, as far as I've heard. So again, when Backlund finally faced off with him, I, I had no doubt that Backlund was going to win the title. And now, I... The next uh, long-reigning champion. Now, a couple of things they did to build this up. They had, I, I'm sure you were there, an eight-man elimination tag team match. And I forget exactly who was in it, but it was Bob. At the end of the day, the three baby faces got eliminated. It was Bob Backlund against four of the top heels, and Bob prevailed. Were you there for that? If it was at the Garden, I, I believe I saw all of uh, Billy Graham's matches defending the title against Mascaris and Maivia and Dusty and whoever else he faced, Monsoon, I believe. Uh, so I must have seen it, but I don't really have a big memory of it. I, I, no. I do remember, but I don't know who he wrestled. It but was that, it, that definitely got him over with the Garden crowd. Definitely. Yeah, it wasn't against like main eventers, to say the very least. I think it was like Tanaka Fuji, Baron Mikel Zakluna, and Stan Stasiak. That's my best guess. And this was Stasiak at the end. (laughs) That's probably who it was. And then I believe it was the next month. They had the Mil Moscaris versus superstar Billy Graham match in January 1978. And the Grand Wizard of Wrestling was not leaving ringside, which, you know, A, was unusual. And B, he's not exactly a threat. And Moscaris went to the back and got Bob Backlund out to even the sides. Mm-hmm. Because back in those days, the managers weren't allowed to stay at ringside, you, except for Skoland. Um, right. Usually the, uh, the triumvirate would, you know, come out, make some noise, and then go back. So when they announced that Backlund would be fighting Graham the following month, even though Graham did not get a clean win over Moscaris because nobody ever did. Yep. And, Instead of, you know, wasting time on a third match, which would produce the same result, it was time for Backlund. Yes. So when it was announced, the place exploded. All right. Because I have heard over the years that, once again, 
everyone knew that Bob Backlund was going to win the title on February 20th, 1978. Without a doubt. He had gotten, as I said, with much credit to Vince Sr., a really wonderful, well-developed buildup. Yeah, I I mean, I was, what, in sixth, or I was in seventh grade when Backlund won the title, and the After Magazines, which we talked a little bit about off the air, <laughs> dropped every hint known to man that Bob Backlund was going, was eventually going to win the title, and I did not pick up on them. I mean, did you, I know we had our little yak on the After Mags, but it was all we had. I mean, did you pick up on it? At that point, I wasn't reading the After Mags because, oh, wow. uh, me and Dave Meltzer had been in regular weekly contact, so there was no need to follow after Mags at that Okay. Point this is 77? Himself. Well, wow. Back, this is like back, way back in like 77, 78? Yeah, Dave and I have been corresponding since December 1971. That's oh, the whole wow. story. Okay, wow. Then, so you're right. You, you definitely don't need the after Mags the way nope. I did. About two or three years later, I just gave up on reading them. I said, "That's what am I fantastic." Money for? Yeah, I mean, I got misinformation. You got good information. I'm a little. I'm very jealous. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. All right. Well, here's one thing I wanted to ask you about. We're going into overtime here, so I. Uh, but I, I need to know about this. Uh, December 26, 1983, after Bob Backlund has been WWF champion for almost six years, the bomb drops. Iron Sheik, completely unexpectedly, to me anyway, wins the WWF title. John, you were at Madison Square Garden. Can you tell me what that night was like? Absolutely unexpected, even with the angle with the Persian club, Mm -hmm. uh, which we had seen the Saturday night before. Actually, I was there, but I wasn't there. I was outside the felt forum with some friends and we were debating, should we, you know, get tickets to see this? And uh, one of my friends said to me, who's back on facing? They said, the Iron Sheik says, nah, he ain't going to win. And we all nodded and went on some arcade playing pinball. <laughs> I did not see it, but I was at the garden for a few minutes. That was also unexpected. Yeah, sure. We were fed up and tired of Backlund. We wanted to see him lose, but Backlund had already beaten the Sheik around the horn about two or so years previously, and um, he just wasn't being given any kind of a buildup to be that much of a threat. So, no, I didn't see that coming. I don't think anybody saw that coming, except far away in San Jose, California. One person knew what was happening. Because when I called Dave the next morning to tell him what had gone, no, actually, yeah, the next morning when I read about it in the paper, he told me that, well, I've got more news for you. He said, Hulk Hogan has just been signed. So at that point, then I realized what was happening. I mean, it it all comes together. I mean, I can tell you my experience. I had just gotten home from a trip to Montreal. And one of my friends like calls me right away and he's like, Bob Backman lost the title. I'm like, get out of here. And he's like, guess to who? And I guessed everyone on the planet. I mean, I get uh, Sergeant Slaughter, Morocco, who had been there for a long time, Orndorff, mass superstar. And they, and they kept going, nope, nope. And then I, I like, I start repeating. And so Sergeant Slaughter, mass superstar. And finally he says, Iron Sheik. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, you know, we, we did a whole show on this maybe two years ago on what led to the decision to put the title on the Iron Sheik. It was this simple. I mean, they signed Hogan, and they were taking the belt off Bob Backlund on his very next uh, Madison Square Garden match, regardless of who, of who it was. That absolutely makes total sense. It, it really does. Because even when they announced that Iron Sheik would be facing Backlund again, it was like, well, why? Why? Why is he get? That's why, you know, I, I wasn't so enthusiastic about going to the show. Because we all saw that already. And the first match they had was a great match. Don't get me wrong. But I didn't want to see it again. For what purpose? And we were tired of Backlund at that point. Yeah. We wanted him to lose, but Iron Sheik wasn't going to beat him. 
And as it turned out, it was a very well done match. It was, you know, a, a friend of mine taped it for me off of their cable. And uh, I was able to watch the whole thing like that weekend. And, and, it, and it was a very, it was a very well done match. But no, total surprise. No, I was, I was. And, and in fact, they had announced, if I recall, they definitely announced at the Garden that Backlund would be getting a rematch with Iron Sheik at the January card. Mm-hmm. I know that happened. I'm not sure if they announced that on the first tapings afterwards. Actually, they they may have that. I that I can't remember. No, what they did in New York was they announced Bob Backlund versus Iron Sheik rematch. And then I want to say a week before, like the, the Saturday before, or maybe like the Saturday nine days before, they announced that Bob Backlund was uh, just, his shoulder had not recovered, he couldn't wrestle, and Hulk Hogan was going to take his place. And Yes, I believe you're right. Yes, yes. It would have been a week or two before, yes. Now, what was your reaction to Hulk Hogan winning the title so quickly? Well... We've seen that movie too. He was going to be the next long-term champ, but I had no idea that what would happen would happen. The direction the WWF would take. I had seen Hogan when he went around the horn with Backlund and with Andre previously. So I wasn't impressed, but I was impressed. Obviously now that he adopted his, uh, thunder lips portrayal in Rocky three and uh-huh. he took on that type of persona. Uh, I knew it would be different, but somehow, I don't know. That wasn't really my cup of tea, but I did think he would be the next long-term champ, but I had no idea the direction it would take. I mean, for, for me, it was like two huge surprises. I mean, earth shaking surprises, uh, four weeks apart because, you know, I, I figured Hulk Hogan would get some sort of a buildup before they put the title on him. I mean, I was even thinking, yeah, Hogan's going to win the title. I'm just like, wow, he's here. Let's see what happens next. And before I even even know it, he's the new champion. Yeah, well, it's pretty much like, in a way, Pedro only had like a very short buildup till he would get the shot. And um, Bruno coming back out of nowhere. So it just seemed to be the same pattern of the interim heel and the long-term champ. Yeah, I mean, you know, the WWF in 1984, I mean, I mean, you know it like I know it. I mean, the era that we grew up in with, you know, Bruno Sammartino, superstar Billy Graham, Bob Backlund. I mean, by the time we hit, you know, July the 4th, like that world was gone. Absolutely. Which which is sad. And like I said, I know, you know, a lot of. A lot of people, a lot of our listeners grew up in the Hogan era and that's what they enjoyed and that's fine. That's cool. It's just for us, it was like, oh man, this, you know, this thing that we once had is sadly gone. Oh yeah. You can never reclaim that. But I mean, I did go to several of Hogan's matches at the garden. I mean, you know, they were interesting for what they were, but for me, jumping the shark came with the ultimate warrior and Mm -hmm. to be honest around that point. I mean, a guy who was already gassed by the time he ran to the ring and would only give you a one or two minute match and a mediocre one at best as your champ. I was pretty much done with watching it consistently at that point. I yeah, lost a lot of interest. I lost a lot of interest right at uh, 92. I was a, a year behind you when they, you know, the promotion just looked old and terrible and didn't feel like it had any star power left and they were doing. Papa Shango and Doink the Clown. We I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I'm sorry to be repetitive. John, I could talk all day with you because you have so many interesting stories to share. And I mean, thank you for coming on. Thank you for letting me sit under your learning tree for an hour. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share this. I mean, for all the your many listeners to have some sort of idea about what it was like in the prehistoric days of WWF <laughs> and I thank you for your great podcast and again for letting me reminisce it was a real pleasure and we'll we'll definitely do this again in the not too distant future because I still have a million questions for you I'm ready <laughs> All right. so anyway I want to thank everyone for listening hopefully we will get through this week I want to thank Lightning Lou Kippelman for 
doing the uh, great job producing this podcast. This is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. We'll see you next week, everyone. Stay safe. This concludes our podcast day.